All right, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 69. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you. And Psalm 69, as we continue our series through our summer in the Psalms, and Randy, thank you so much for leading so well, and the, and the song selection really helped set up this text very well, especially that psalm setting by Isaac Watts, so we greatly appreciate that. John MacArthur in Grace Community Church in California, back in the summer of 2020, they, they were told they could not gather for worship. The governor told them that they were not permitted by law to gather because of the COVID-19 crisis that had captured hearts and minds of people all across the globe. You see, when the church began to see that things were permitted on the news, things that were described only as essential, one of those things that was listed on the news was protesting, was considered essential, gathering in public, shoulder to shoulder, protesting because of what had been going on with the George Floyd riots that had shook our nation. But church was considered non-essential by the governor. John MacArthur made an enemy of Governor Gavin, Gavin Newsom. His enemy, the government at that time, which was they were going beyond their jurisdiction. Instead of ruling on civil matters, which is their sphere of authority that God has given them, they sought to rule on ecclesial matters, the sphere of the authority of the church. The government sought to make things very difficult for the church. For example, they took away a massive section of of parking right across the street, if you've ever been there, that the church rented from the government. They regularly paid for it. And what makes this worse is not only did the government oppose John MacArthur, but those who are of his own spiritual family, evangelical leaders across the nation began writing blogs and criticizing and making videos criticizing John MacArthur for his stance to return to the worship gathering. Men who called themselves his friends, men who regularly ministered with him were unsympathetic to his cause. Few stood with him. What were they to do but to turn to the Lord their God for deliverance? You see, God demands that the church meet. The church is essential. And they sought to be faithful to do so. And Pastor John had zeal for the worship of God and zeal for God's people, the church. He sought to be obedient no matter the consequences. Now, how would you respond under such pressure? In this text today, we can learn how to properly respond like men like John MacArthur did, like David did in the Old Testament in his own day when his enemies and his brothers turned against him. He turned to the Lord in his lament and prayer and entrusted himself to God in the midst of his suffering. Now next to Psalm 22, Psalm 69 is the most cited Psalm in the New Testament. This Psalm of lament and petition clearly shows how the Psalmist has experienced great suffering at the hands of his enemies. And the reason for his suffering is attributed to his zeal for the house of the Lord. It is not uncommon for the godly to suffer from their enemies. Think of what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see, the psalmist wasn't suffering because he had committed some crime or act of evil, but because of his zeal for God. This psalm shows how even those closest to him 
friends and family treated him like a stranger. They didn't care about his suffering for the Lord. His only response was to turn to the Lord. Now this psalm could be taking place near the end of David's reign and right before Solomon's. He could uh, be recounting the aftermath of the situation with his son Absalom rebelling against him or uh, even Sheba's rebellion in 2 Samuel 20. If you don't know this about the Psalms, it's divided into five books. And Psalm 72, which we'll hit at the end of the summer, is the end of book two. And so Psalm 72 seems to be focused on David praying for God's blessings on his son Solomon. And as we're in Psalm 69, we're building up to that moment at the end of book two. Now, the main idea of this passage, if I were to put it into a sentence for you, is this. We must cry out to God as the faithful remnant when we suffer, so that we might please God who is faithful to us. Let me say that again. We must cry out to God as the faithful remnant. That's who we are when we suffer, so that we might please God who is faithful to us. So that we might please God who is faithful to us. God is faithful. And we're gonna see that in our psalm today. So the first reason we must cry out to God when we suffer is because number one, we cannot save ourselves. Look at the text with me in Psalm 69. It says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, with those who, ta- who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? The psalmist immediately opens up with a cry for God to save him. Only God can save him. And this imagery of sinking and of, of a flood recalls to mind what happened in Genesis 6 through 8. The flood of the earth. And God judging the earth by a flood. We see that picture of judgment, do we not? It, it, the water's gotten so deep he cannot even touch the ground. You know, I remember as a kid when I was little and we had a swimming pool and the, the deep end was six feet. I was not quite six feet yet. And I remember going down in the deep end and, and like, oh, I can touch the bottom. And what I do, I'd push back up and I'd, oh, I can, I can keep wading water there. I can be up there. But in this case, there wasn't that for him. There was nowhere. There was no foothold for him. There was no edge of the pool he could cling on. He was in a difficult situation. And in this precarious situation with his enemies, he states in verse four really clearly, they hate him without cause. And he compares it to close to being drowning because of how mighty his enemies are. And notice, it seems like it's not just that he's out of nowhere just started crying out. Look at how verse three describes how long he's been crying out. So long that verse three says, I am weary with my crying out. So he's been doing it continuously. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. He seems to in his mind, as he's saying it, losing hope, feeling hopeless. Regarding the situation, his throat is hoarse, his own eyes look like the situation is hopeless. He's waited for God to save him. 
And verse, clarif- verse 4 clarifies this is not a literal flood, right? It's his enemies. They're so numerous he cannot count those who hate him without cause. In other words, what he is saying is these enemies have no legitimate basis at all for their attacks, their mistreatment of him, their hatred of him. He has done no wrong in relation to them to be deserving of this treatment. And this immediately brings to mind for the Christian how our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was treated by his enemies. Jesus points this out when he speaks with his disciples <coughs> as they walk in the Garden of Gethsemane. In John chapter 15, verse 23 and 25, Jesus says, Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. And he goes on to cite Psalm 69. They hated me without a cause. They hated me without a cause. In many ways, painting the very picture the psalmist paints, Jesus shows its fulfillment here in this circumstance. There was no ground or basis of any of their hatred for Jesus. No cause to say, here's a good reason to hate Jesus. They had none. The truth is, they hated Jesus. And they, we saw how wicked they treated him in his trial. They blindfolded him and they'd slap him and say, prophesy who hit you. They would mistreat him severely, bringing false witnesses that even contradicted each other. They had no cause. They had no basis. In this psalm, we see clearly that those who are enemies of David, hating him without cause, it's because he demonstrates his zeal for the house of God. As verse 4 indicates, these foes are greater in might than David. So he needed someone who was not only more powerful than him and his enemies, but knew him better than anyone else to save him from this opposition and these lies. David turns to the God who knows him for an honest assessment. So the second reason we must cry out to God when we suffer as the faithful remnant is because he knows our hearts better than anyone else. He knows our hearts better than anyone else. Look at verse five to 12 with me. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. O God of Israel, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. And when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. As is clearly indicated in verse five, the psalmist openly acknowledges that he is a sinner and that he has done wrong, but he is not wrong as relates to what's happening. He knows nothing can be hidden from God. As it says in 1 Chronicles 28, 9, it says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Why? For the Lord searches all hearts, and he understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. 
God knows everything. Nothing can be hidden from God. The psalmist's concern, though, isn't just his own integrity, but also, as verse 6 indicates, his concern is for other believers. He loves others who love the Lord. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Don't let those who love you, because of my situation with my enemies, lose hope. There are those faithful believers who could suffer because of what's happening to him. So he calls on the God of armies. He says, O Lord God of hosts, of a mighty host of an army. He calls on him to defend their honor. Notice, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. He's desiring the honor of others. He loves his neighbor. And in crying out to God, he says, O God of Israel, addressing him as in a sense saying, this is, this, this is your people. You love them. Don't let them be dishonored through me. So the, he then gives his reason in verse 7, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, or if this word, if you don't know what this means, it means disgrace. He's borne this disgrace. He says, that dishonor has covered my face. Now David is not saying he has sinned. He is guilty of sin, because God knows his folly. Whatever he's being accused of by his adversaries concerning this, he is innocent. He could have listened to the charges of his adversaries who say in verse 4 that he stole. That's why he asks that question. You know, what, what I've been accused of stealing, should I now restore? Because you might remember in the Old Testament, the penalty for stealing was restitution. So should he restore what he stole? He did not steal. David feared God and he feared him completely. Now let's try to understand this connection between verse 5 and verse 7. Verse 5 is David's guilt, but verse 7 is bearing reproach for God's sake. One commentator, James Hamilton, explains, rather than deny his guilt by redefining right and wrong, and rather than refusing to confess his sins and try to sweep it under the rug, David openly confessed himself to be worthy of reproach. He's worthy of disgrace because he's a sinner. He understands that. He did this for God's sake. Fear of God kept him from saying that what he had done was not wrong. And fear of God kept him from refusing to acknowledge his sin. Thus, fear of God put him out in public as a sinner worthy of reproach. He was not afraid to say, I'm a sinner. You're not wrong that I'm a sinner, but I'm not sinning like you're saying I am. And that's key. He feared God and not man. He didn't just acquiesce to their demands. Okay, okay, I stole, I'm just gonna restore. He didn't steal, all the while knowing he didn't steal. He wouldn't do that, he feared the Lord first. So this text shows that not only David's love of neighbor and how he cared about others receiving dishonor, he didn't want that for them, but even those closest to him, they, what he desired for them was they would worship God. He could have been consumed by the fact in verse 8 as he recounts, I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien or a foreigner to my mother's sons. But instead of being consumed by something that would be so bewildering to the human eye, like how could you go against your own family, The text states in verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me. Listen, you might have to do some things in life sometimes, especially as it relates to your family, where your family completely opposes you for what stand you take. But what should consume you is not their opinion, but God's. And zeal, passion for God in his house should consume you. 
And the text continues, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. You see, the worship of God consumes David. It makes sense, right? He wrote many of these Psalms. It makes sense. Now this gets to the heart of what David's doing here. He longs with great affection to worship God. He treasures God more than anything else in all creation. But even in having this great, all-consuming affection for God, he's facing this opposition from his enemies and estrangement from his families, from his family. As Alan Ross notes, he says, we do not know exactly what form his zeal took. Perhaps he was eager for reforms in the worship, in the sanctuary. They would be required if it had been neglected or profaned or its worship corrupted, so that could be it. But looking at John chapter 2, verse 17, we see the disciples using this verse and remembering Jesus' zeal for the Father's house. Jesus drove out the money changers, those who were seeking to make a profit off the worship of God. And Jesus said, do not make my Father's house a house of trade. And verse 17 states, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, Jesus saw such pragmatism, and anachronistic, I know, that word was not around then. He saw pragmatism in the worship. Pragmatism says, if it works, do it. People didn't want the inconvenience of having to haul their own sacrifices from wherever they were in the land of Israel up the mountain to Jerusalem. It worked. It was easier for them to purchase it right there. So they did it. But that wasn't what God commanded. God commanded from your own flock to offer sacrifice. And from your own flock, that was a picture of the gospel, of Christ's death. So they cared only about convenience. They did not fear God. They wanted to serve themselves. They feared man. Convenience and ease overruled obedience. And that is dangerous. Well, you might say, how did they fear man? Well, if you do not fear God, if you do not fear God and love him and obey his commands, you're fearing man whether it's your reverencing man and his opinion first or your own. This contrast is all over scripture. If you do a word study on this, you'll see exactly what I mean. I also want to recommend a really great book to you on this subject. It's from Ed Welch. It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. In other words, I'm seeing man is greater than God. And it's an incorrect view of God and man. So it seems that the psalmist was willing to face enemies who hated him for his zeal. He was willing to suffer estrangement for this zeal because he didn't live to please himself, as the rest of these verses in this section clearly indicate. Notice, he says, I wept and humbled my soul with fasting. When you're fasting, you're not pleasing yourself. That became his reproach. He humbled himself, not pleasing himself. If you're wearing a sackcloth, you're not pleasing yourself. He became a byword, the talk of the town over his stand to be faithful. He's not pleasing himself. The drunkards made songs about him. You know, the subject of the, the conversation is, oh, look at David. He's such a fundamentalist for the things of God, always correcting others and saying, God this, God said that, blah, 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 blah. Right? That's what they're doing all the while imbibed at the city gate. Even the guys who get drunk all the time, they've made songs about him, they sing in mockery against David and against the things of God. Our fundamentalist David is the laughingstock of those who care about licentiousness and worldly things. But David didn't live to please himself. Which you can tell, this is exactly how Paul took this verse to mean when he cites this verse in Romans 15.3. Romans 15.3, for Christ did not please himself, 
But as it is written, and he quotes Psalm 69, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ is our example of obedience, of dying to self. And Paul is seeking to use David's example here and showing how Christ did exactly this in his death for those who are weak and in need. Because Christ did not please himself, he bore our reproach. Christ is our example. Fear him, beloved. Fear him alone and do things his way, not the way of the world. So in all of this, David feared God. Now pointing out your human weakness in a worldly sense definitely appears to compromise your position of strength, right? We don't want people to see that we're weak, especially when we fear them. We don't want to either begin to weep or begin to admit faults. But Christians don't operate according to worldly wisdom. We operate according to God's. In a world where what matters most in the eyes of many is strength or being a formidable force, Paul contrasts God and man in first, uh, God's, man, God's ways and man's ways in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26. Notice it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But notice the repetition here. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not in yourself. Boast in the Lord. This is the exact biblical attitude that should mark the Christian. Recognize where God has put you. And notice, once again, it's God choosing. He put you here as foolish, low, and weak in the eyes of the world. Even in the midst of this difficult opposition, as you take your stand for him, David's zeal for the house of God is in him boasting in the Lord. Boasting in what the Lord cares about. Boasting in the God who helps as a weak and needy sinner in desperate need of God's help. Let me ask you, do you see yourself that way? Weak and needy? You know, it's really interesting as a contrast. Back in the 17th century, Jonathan Edwards, he wrote the biography or autobiography of the life of David Brainerd by taking David Brainerd's, which was going to be his son-in-law, his journal entries of him reaching the Indians in, in, the, in the New World. And that book, he ends up dying, David Brainerd dies. That book is a picture of self-sacrifice. You know, around the same time, another book was published by Benjamin Franklin. And it was about being the self-made man. And in God's eyes, David Brainerd's life was a, or sorry, in man's eyes, David Brainerd's life was a waste. But God's eyes saw it as something precious, because precious in the Lord is the death of his saints. So we continue on through our text. And as, as we think about fearing the Lord, here's our third reason to cry out to God. The third reason we must cry out to God when we suffer as the faithful remnant is because only he can save me. Only he can save me. Verse 13, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. 
at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Verse 13 opens up a contrast between him and those who talk foolishly of him. They sing songs about him while drunk, and they hate him with no cause, but he responds in worship. You know, but as for me, I'm not going to be like them. My prayer's to you, O Lord. And they're just singing foolish songs to each other. So at an acceptable time, O God, at the favorable time, in your grace, in the abundance of your steadfast love, God is going to answer him in his saving faithfulness. So David knows who the Lord is. He knows God delivers. It is rooted in the fact that he has this covenant loyal love with David. The covenant God had already made with David had already taken place in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to establish his throne as an eternal throne. This entire petition, as we see in this subsection, is based on the nature of God. And and beloved, that should shape our petitions and our prayer. As we read God's word, our prayer should reflect the nature of God and who he is. So look at verse 14 and 19 and how it unfolds and what it says about God in his petition. Deliver me from the sinking mire. We see God delivers. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Once again, a reference to what he said in the beginning. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. So we see God answers. Why? Because his love is good. God is good. He's not going to do wrong by David here. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. So God's mercy leads him to turn to David because God's going to be faithful to his word. He's going to keep his covenant. So God turns and he faces David. He sees David and what he's going through. He doesn't turn away from him. He looks to him and what's happening in his situation. And we see this clearly in verse 17. He says, hide not your face from your servant. What does this say about God? God sees. He knows what is happening with his people, and because he sees, he will answer. For I I am in distress. Make haste to answer me, David continues. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. We see that God is close and not far. You see, the deists thought, okay, God made everything and he left it as it is. But that's not the case. God is intimately involved in his creation. He redeems, he buys out of the marketplace of sin. He ransoms, he rescues in times of trouble. Verse 19, you know my reproach. So what does this also say about God? God knows everything about David and all of his sins, problems, enemies, everything. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor, my foes, they're all known to you. This says so much about God and our prayers should be shaped that way as well. One example in recent history where we see a man standing for the truth of God with zeal for his word concerns that of Charles Spurgeon and the, the infamous downgrade controversy. You see, Spurgeon was concerned that many preachers in England were compromising on the faith in many major ways. In his six-page editorial titled, Another Word on the Downgrade, he shares what those issues are and writes in such a way that this paragraph has taken on, as it were, a sense of immortality in the mind of those aiming to be faithful preachers. Spurgeon writes, No lover of the gospel can conceal from himself the fact that the days are evil. 
We are willing to make a large discount from our apprehensions on the score of natural timidity, the caution of age, and the weakness produced by pain. But yet our solemn conviction is that things are much worse in many churches than they seem to be and are rapidly tending downward. Read those newspapers which represent the broad school of dissent and ask yourself, how much farther could they go? What doctrine remains to be abandoned? What other truth to be the object of contempt? A new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements. And on this plea usurps pulpits which were erected for gospel preaching. And here he lays out the issues that were happening at the downgrade controversy. The atonement is scouted. The inspiration of scripture is derided. The Holy Spirit is degraded into an influence. The punishment of sin is turned into a fiction and the resurrection into a myth. And yet these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brethren and maintain a confederacy with them? Spurgeon goes on. The case is mournful. Certain ministers are making infidels. Avowed atheists are not a tenth as dangerous as those preachers who scatter doubt and stab at faith. Germany was made unbelieving by her preachers, and England is following in her tracks. End quote. Jason Allen, the president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, recounts Spurgeon's life during this time and the events surrounding the controversy. The Baptist Union sought to find some middle ground to compromise, make compromises, and Allen states that the Baptist Union adopted a compromise doctrinal statement, which was altogether too weak, neither clear nor comprehensive enough. Though outside the Union, Spurgeon opposed the statement for its obvious deficiencies. Nonetheless, it passed overwhelmingly by a vote of 2,000 to 7 and can appropriately be interpreted as a second vote against Spurgeon because he had withdrawn from the union and he was voted out with only five votes in favor of him. Allen continues, most tragically, Spurgeon's own brother, James, seconded the motion to pass the compromise doctrinal statement. Spurgeon, the lion in winter, was prophetic, if not popular. He said, I'm quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years, but the more distant future shall vindicate me. Allen ends his article saying, the controversy cost Spurgeon dearly. It cost him his friendships. It cost him his reputation. Even his own brother disowned his decision. Yet for Spurgeon to remain within the union would be tantamount to theological treason, end quote. You see, this narrative of Spurgeon is a very similar predicament that David found himself in. As we saw earlier in the psalm, he was hated without any basis by his enemies, and his own family were unsympathetic to his cause. David wraps up this section in verse 20 and 21, describing the effects of his enemies upon him. Notice, reproaches have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. David was at the point of despair because of his inner man was broken over these reproaches. There was no compassion. There was no comforters, no support. And instead of support, he received poison 
for food, sour wine for drink. And this imagery is actually repeated in, in the gospels at the cross where the symbols of bitter treatment with the gall and vinegar were directly applicable in Jesus's crucifixion on the cross. We see this picture there, this fulfillment there, and no sustenance for David and his suffering. In the same way, there was no sustenance for Jesus in his suffering. David desperately needed to cry out for the Lord to save him, which leads to our fourth reason we must cry out to God when we suffer as a faithful remnant. It's because he judges with perfect justice and wrath. Look down at verse 22 with me. Let their own table become, uh, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. You see, this verse is cited actually in Romans 11, 9 through 10. This is focused on the fact that Israel was hardened in their heart and failed to obtain what they were seeking. They were spiritually blind to the truth because of their hardened hearts. Psalm 69 continues in verse 24. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. You see, God is a God of wrath, judgment, and anger. And what describes each of those things is his holiness, See, what comes to mind for me when I think of this image is the book of Revelation. Often people have said, well, the God of the Old Testament, he's the angry God, and the God of the New Testament is the all-loving God. No, God is the same. As Hebrews says, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Revelation 14 actually lays out God's anger. Listen in verse 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead and on his hand... Listen to this description of God. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Y'all, God gets angry. And eternal suffering in hell is not what sometimes people have erroneously said. It's not the absence of God's presence. It's not. You know, God is present in hell. That's what our text just said. Look again. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb, hell is the absence of God's blessing. It's the absence of God's grace. But it is not the absence of his anger and wrath. And it is eternal conscious torment. It's not you go to hell and you're all of a sudden annihilated and you don't feel anything anymore. No, it is forever. You know it's happening and it's torment for your sin forever. That's what God's anger and wrath for sin is. If we go back to our Psalm, verse 25, he continues these imprecatory prayers. May their camp be a desolation that no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Alan Ross says that these people have, had persecuted those the Lord had struck down and celebrated the pain of those wounded. Another commentator summarizes the meaning of these lines by saying that God had, has already chastened the psalmist and placed him in a situation where he would be consumed with zeal for the temple. His suffering was both for sin and for the cost of witnessing for God but they were obviously going after him for the wrong thing. The text continues with these imprecatory prayers, these prayers of judgment in verse 27. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. 
Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And essentially this means that they wouldn't be among the living. Those alive now, it, it, it means that remove them out of this land, the whole earth, this land of living. The New Testament, as you know, later picks up on this imagery regarding the book of life, talks about it in the book of Revelation and, and eternal life. But David continues in verse 29 saying, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. This final cry and recap on all that has taken place here in this verse, what he desires to take place regarding his enemies has been said. He knows God judges with perfect justice and wrath. And David knowing his enemies are not suffering and he wants to be saved and then punished for their wickedness. They deserve it clearly and God sees and will will deal with it in his timing. So very strong judgment has been, language has been seen in this text, and it's clearly not the image of God our culture or world likes to hear, but it's a message we all must hear and take heed to. People need to hear the law of God, the wrath of God for sin, because, beloved, think about it. Why would there be any need for salvation? Why would there be any need for love if we don't even know of the wrath for sin? It's because of the wrath for sin that we desperately need the cross. We need the love of God, and it's in God's love that he is even filled with anger for sin. Because if not, he would leave us as we were. It was God's grace to expel Adam and Eve from the garden that they may not partake of the tree of life and stay in that condition forever. It was grace and mercy. And we thank the Lord for that, for his sovereign care through all of history until now. So... This leads us to the fifth reason we must cry out to God, the fifth and final reason we must cry out to God when we suffer as the faithful remnant. It is because he is pleased when we have faith in him as the God who saved, saves. He is pleased when we have faith in him as the God who saves. Verse 30 begins this praise. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. I think of Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, is it impossible to please him? It's impossible. You cannot please God without faith. Without faith, is it impossible? It is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And notice exactly what the psalmist is doing as he leaves behind those 30 verses of lament and climaxes this psalm in praise to God. His lament is oriented toward praise to God, to thankfulness, to gratitude, to joy. He has done what James has said for us to do to count it all joy. And may we do so. He will praise God with a song, magnify him, and it's because it is all by faith. He knows this pleases God more than offering an ox on an altar or a bull. As we've seen in our study of Hebrews, we can't come near to God because of the ox or the bull. We can only come near to God because of the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. Drawing near to God is essential. But what pleases God is faith. That's how we draw near. It's not the rituals. Notice the response this text should give to those singing with the psalmist. It should give to us, verse 32, when the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy. God hears. And he does not despise his own people who are prisoners. 
Let heaven and earth praise him. The seas and everything that moves in them. All of creation should join in this praise. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. What a beautiful picture. That God will save and build and people will dwell and possess. And who will do that? Verse 36 tells us, the offsprings of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. What a glorious picture of salvation and eternal life we see even in this imagery here. God will save. God will build. He'll build his people. He will dwell with them and they will be his people as it says in Revelation. And God himself will be with him as their God. We will possess the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Those who love his name shall dwell in it. You see, the name of Jesus means, this is the name that we should love. It means he will save his people from their sins as we see in Matthew's gospel. Let me ask you, do you love that name? Do you love that name? The name that is above every name. The name that represents the one who died for you, who died for me to deal with our sin debt with God that we so justly deserved. We deserved his wrath, not salvation. And he gave us life. He rose victorious over sin's penalty, death. Let me ask you today, if you're an unbeliever in this room, have you repented of your sin and trusted in Christ alone? As I said, the main idea of this message in a sentence is we must cry out to God as the faithful remnant when we suffer so that we might please God who is faithful to us. As this text laid out for us, we must cry out to God when we suffer because we cannot save ourselves. He knows our hearts better than anyone else. Only he can save me. He judges with perfect justice and wrath and he is pleased when we have faith in him as the God who saves. So those who love the Lord, those who love the truth, and will take a stand for that which is essential to the faith, you will face persecution from your enemies. You will face estrangement from close brothers and sisters, but beloved, it will be all worth it in the end. It will all be worth it in the end. God is faithful. Be faithful to him in his word, and he will never fail thee. He will never fail thee. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time to reflect upon your word, to respond. And God, we need your help because we are poor and needy and weak. We need you. And by coming to you, you show us true strength. You show us true wisdom in real life, according to your steadfast love, your covenant loyal love, and according to your mercy, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope. But there might be some in this room who have no hope, who are in despair. If you're an unbeliever in this room today, God calls you to repentance and faith. This means turning from your sin, agreeing with God about your sin and turning to him and trusting in him alone. You see, faith is merely the instrument of salvation. It's Christ's blood and his merits which save